A Qantas Airbus A380, the biggest jet airliner, has a catastrophe on its way to Sydney. How did this flight nearly end a disaster? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Oh, hey. Hi. (laughs) So we have some really exciting news for you guys because I thought of it this week. So some of you, and you know who you are, you email us. Uh, It's not the same person every week, but we usually get something every week of an aviation story from you guys where whatever we talk about that week or you have a cool story you want to share with us. So we decided to do this fun thing where once a month now, we're going to do the aviation stories of the month, where we take your stories and we read them and react to them on air, which I think will be super fun. It'll be ad-free because uh, although technically these are ad-free episodes so far, that may not be the case for much longer. So that specific episode will be ad-free. And... How you can participate if you'd like to send us an aviation story. Now, you don't have to be in the aviation community to send us a story. It can be something related to a trip or something you've seen on a plane or whatever. It as doesn't... long as it's aviation related. Yeah. So basically, how you share your stories with us is if you go to our website, hardlandingspodcast.com, there is a tab that says listener <laughs> story submissions. Thank you. And it's there's a form that you fill out. You fill out your name. Now, if you don't want to tell us your name, you want to keep yourself anonymous, we get it. Put a fake name or put your name and ask us not to say your name and we'll make up a name for you. Or put something fun because we enjoy humor. Yeah. So if you don't want us to say your name on air, that's fine. We probably will only say first names anyway, even though it asks you to put your last name. And then put a cool title on it and then write your story and submit it. And it will email it to us and we'll do them probably about mid-month and get it out to you guys. So I think, I don't, I don't know, I think that'd be fun. I think it'd be fun. And it doesn't mean a lot of editing for us. Yes. There's quite a few bits of audience participation things we are aiming to do. I'll, I wanted to do something similar to this, kind of when we started this podcast. I wanted to start a a branch off of this, where it was all stories. But I think this will be a a fun way to incorporate it with all of our audience. Everybody, everybody who's listening, hello. So we're going to have fun, cool themes every month. If it's... If you want to submit a story that has nothing to do with the theme, that's fine. We'll read it. But we, you know, just to include those of you who aren't in actual aviation... Uh, like you haven't worked for an airline or anything like that. So the this month, September, is going to be tell us a story, a funny story that has to do with aviation. It yeah. could be when you worked for an airline. It could be on a trip or you saw it on a plane or at the airport. Doesn't matter. That's the theme for this month, a funny aviation story. And that will probably come out in October. It depends. It depends on how many submissions we get by mid-month. Yeah. So, for example, we have a really funny story of our first band trip. We went to New York, and we had this hilarious flight attendant. But to hear the whole story, you gotta listen. Yeah, try to keep your submissions appropriate and short. So, 
Well, okay, you so m- not super short, but... Well, yeah, not super short. It doesn't have to be super short, but tell it to us in a way that we could tell everybody without you taking up our entire episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, do know, we are reading these, right? We read the submissions, so make sure they're appropriate, right? We don't cuss on well, this platform. Right. Um, we do on our Patreon episodes, but this is not for Patreon. So make sure that you keep the cussing to a minimum because we can bleep it out, but we don't want to bleep the entire thing. <laughs> and make sure it's, I mean, I would say a couple paragraphs would be fine, um, but don't make it like your life story. <laughs> yeah. In aviation, you can always tell us more than one. And we can always split them up over the months, right? We'll exactly. be doing this for now on once a month. So don't feel like you have so many stories and you can't submit it to us. That's okay. Do one a month <laughs> and we'll read them eventually. Other ideas coming in the future that we have discussed in the past. Uh, I would like to also do your aviation-related questions where we just answer them either quickly at the beginning of an episode or maybe during those once a month listener episodes. Yeah. Uh, undecided yet, but point is, is we would like to do your aviation-related questions as well at some point for some more audience participation. Yeah, so maybe we'll have a segment in those listener where we answer questions. We'll see. Yeah. If you want to submit a question instead of a story, feel free to do that, but... Give us feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, if you'd like to participate, you need to go to hardlandingspodcast.com, go to listener story submissions, and it's pretty self-explanatory from there. If you have any questions, let us know. Sorry for the kind of long intro this week, but we wanted to introduce that before we get into what we're covering, which means, what are we covering today, Nick? Thanks. <laughs> like my sagu. <laughs> well, before I even... Yeah, your sagu. Yeah. My sagu. Well, before I even jump into that, thank you, Chris Stallard, for yes. this recommendation. So today, we are covering Qantas Flight 32. Which, if I understand this cor- correctly, Qantas does not have a lot of accidents. You're correct. As a matter of fact... They have never lost a plane. Yes. Um, <laughs> They're super... Proud. Proud of that fact. And to be fair, it's really pretty amazing because any airline as old as they are, which they just passed 100 years old, they... That's hard to say. Yeah. No other airline can say that at their age. So that's significant. And I mean, they also don't have very many incidents in their history. They're an unbelievably safe airline. So inferring from our statements, you can assume, yes, no one dies. Yep. Yay. And they don't lose the plane. Yes. Uh, there was an incident that we are not covering today where they nearly lost an airplane, but they spent a lot more time and money than any other airline probably would, and they fixed the airplane and got it flying again. No other airline would probably put that amount of work into it, but they were so, they're were so they so proud of their no-hull loss that they actually are willing to do that, and I, I actually think that's kind of cool. Are they still flying this plane? This one? Mm-hmm. Yes. What's it doing? Uh, sitting on the ground. None of them oh, are. None point. of theirs are flying right now. LOL, JK. <laughs> they don't have very many to begin with, and they're not flying them. So normally, Qantas would still be flying this particular plane, but uh, the Rona. Yes. Yeah. So, this happened on November 4th of 2010. So, just about 10 years ago. Wow. Crazy. This flight was to be from Singapore to Sydney... Australia. Australia. And Singapore, Singapore. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This was on an Airbus A380. 
Ooh, yes. big, big plane. The Biggin. The big double-deck, four-engine, massive, biggest airliner ever built. The town number was a Victor Hotel-Oscar-Quebec-Alpha. Which made its most recent flight on July 10th. Wow. Took off from Sydney, and it is parked at Victorville. Yep, that's sad. They're all there right now. The captain for this flight was Richard Krepney. Dick Krepney. Uh, that's a separate oh. word. Dick Krepney. There's also another word in the middle of his name. Champion. Yes, champion. Champion Dick Krepney. He was 53 years old. He had 15,140 hours total. That's quite a bit. Of which 570 hours were on the A380. Because, since this was in 2010, the A380 had only been in service with the airlines for two years. So everybody was pretty new on the A380. The first officer was Matt Hicks. He had 11,279 hours, so still pretty experienced, of which he had 1,271 hours on the A380. So he actually had more than twice as much as the captain on the A380. Wow. Yep. That actually makes sense later. Yes. He has less experience overall, though. Then there were three other people in the cockpit. There was the second officer, who was Mark Johnson. He was there as a relief pilot. So he was just in the cockpit, but wasn't actually flying at any point in time. He had 8,153 hours total, of which 1,005 hours were in the A380. Then there was Harry Wubbin. He was a Czech captain, as this was a Czech flight. They were checking the captain. Doing a jiggity check. Jiggity check. Making sure he knows what the heck he's doing. Yep. Which, knowing that this is on an airplane crash podcast... That means this is going to be real not great. Yeah. Yeah. So Harry Wubbin was the most experienced person on the airplane at 20,144 hours. Wow. That's quite a bit. He had 806 hours in the A380, so less than the first officer, but more than the captain. Then the fifth person in the cockpit was David Evans. He was a senior Czech captain, so he was also a Czech pilot. They have so many seats in that cockpit. Yes. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Usually there's, like, three seats. Two for the pilots and one jump seat. Right. Maybe a second jump seat. This is a big cockpit. Maybe. It's a big airplane. Yeah. That's a lot of seats. Yep. He had 17,692 hours total, so he was the second most experienced there. And he had the most time on the A380. He had 1,345 hours. So that meant there were five flight crew. There was also 24 cabin crew members and 440 passengers. They'd fly actual passengers on a check flight oh yeah well th- so this wasn't him getting checked out to fly the airplane this was just more of like a review just making sure he's standard and they're not going to pay for an a380 to just fly around with nobody on it so okay. yes they they do this on operations flights and that's because they're fully qualified they have to do all of their actual training in the simulators but in order to keep their currency on it they have to be reviewed every so often. So these check pilots fly along with them and do that review. Okay. At 9.56 a.m., we're going to take you on a roller coaster ride starting right now. The flight took off from Singapore Changi Airport from runway 20 Center. Never really talked about a center runway before. Yeah, but they exist. Yep. It just means there's three runways, and they all go the same direction, and there's one in the middle. You have a right, left, and a center. The takeoff and climb out was normal. The flight crew retracted the landing gear as they gained speed. And they retracted the flaps as well. The flight passed over the water, separating Singapore and Indonesia. At 10.01 a.m., as the flight was passing over the island of Batam in Indonesia, climbing through 7,000 feet and 250 knots, the crew heard two simultaneous loud bangs. The captain immediately selected the altitude and heading hold modes on the autopilot, 
so they could figure out what was going on? Pretty much. So in other words, the airplane suddenly leveled out at their current altitude and kept the heading going straight ahead so they wouldn't make any turns. The aircraft yawed slightly to the left as they did this, but maintained its heading, and also it leveled off. The captain expected that the auto thrust would maintain the 250 knots, which is the fastest you can go below 10,000 feet almost anywhere on Earth, legally. But he noticed that it did not, so because the auto thrust was no longer active, so he manually reduced the power to maintain the speed. Nearly simultaneously to all of this, the Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitoring, or ECAM, as I will refer to it, it's just basically a computer monitor that knows everything about the airplane, sensors everywhere, it's just like your car when it tells you something's wrong. This thing tells you what's wrong. The ECAM system displayed a message indicating the number two engine overheat warning, which was noticed by the first officer. So one and two are on the left wing, three and four are on the right wing. We're talking about the inboard, inboard engine, on, engine. The, on the left side. So go. it's closer to the fuselage on the left wing. You look confused. I, I keep going. <laughs> I don't think any questions you'd be able to answer right now. Okay. They might get answered <laughs> along the yeah, way. Yeah, that's why I'm not asking them. Okay. Shortly after this, the ECAM began displaying a myriad of fault messages to the crew. The captain confirmed that he had control of the aircraft and instructed the first officer to begin working through the ECAM messages and actions. So along with each fault message in the ECAM system are usually a set of procedures on how to either correct the issue or eliminate the issue, essentially. The primary issue was with the number two engine. So the first action on the ECAM, the first actions on the ECAM were related to this. And they called for the number two engine to be brought to idle for 30 seconds and be monitored. The first officer did this and monitored the engine. At 10.02 a.m., so about a minute later, during that 30-second monitoring period, the captain announced pan, pan, pan to the air traffic controller. So this is an internationally recognized phrase that essentially is like emergency, yeah, so but without actually being an emergency. They don't need immediate assistance. They just are telling them, hey, we're in a situation... Go we, away, leave me alone. Yeah, leave me alone, basically. Yeah, so Mayday is if there was an actual issue, yep. potential crash, that yep. kind of thing. Pan is like, we have a situation going on, but we don't know what's happening. Right. Like, we know that there's an issue, but it's not it, It's not like we're going to die, you know. Exactly. While the captain was communicating with air traffic control, a new ECAM message popped up, and an alarm sounded to alert the crew that there was a fire in the number two engine. This lasted only about one to two seconds, however, before reverting to the overheat message. And then the 30-second monitoring period was to reset because of that. So they had to start the 30 seconds of monitoring the engine all over again. As the overheat persisted past those 30 seconds, the next part of the procedure required that the number two engine be shut down. The first officer attempted to shut down the engine, and as he did so, the ECAM displayed a message that the engine had failed. Yep. So everything's just wrong with that engine. Uh, to me... It's either the engine's probably just not working, which they heard thumps, so it's a possibility, mm -hmm. or the ECAM's going weird. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> a damage assessment as part of the procedure suggested to the crew that the engine was still on fire and that damage was serious, so they elected to discharge one of the engine's fire extinguishers. They did not receive any indication that the fire extinguisher had discharged, so they repeated the process. Again, they had no indication that it discharged. This surprised the crew, so they attempted to discharge the second fire extinguisher bottle in the engine. But again, after doing that one twice, they still had no indication that it worked. 
So they continued the engine failure actions, which included a fuel transfer process. The engine failure message then displayed the number two engine as failed. The number one and number four engines were in a degraded mode. And the number three engine was in an alternate mode, meaning not all air data collected was accurate or working for the other three operating engines. So in other words, engines one, three, and four were operating, but the data being fed to the cockpit wasn't accurate or working at all. So they weren't sure exactly what was going on. The flight crew then discussed the safest option for the flight. They opted to maintain their current altitude and put the airplane on a hold to work through the ECAM messages, as these would tell them a lot about the airplane, the faults, the how to operate the airplane, make sure that the airplane maintains a safe situation. And then they would return to Singapore. They had plenty of fuel, and the plane was relatively stable, so they knew they had some time. They communicated this to the air traffic controller and informed them that they would need a safe place to hold while they worked the ECAM messages for about 30 minutes. The flight crew then requested a holding location within 30 miles of the airport after air traffic control had told them they could hold roughly where they were, which was much further away. So where were they So they were at this point? They were southeast of Singapore, about 100 miles away. Okay. So they wanted to go back toward the airport and be much closer in case they needed to land soon. The air traffic controller gave them headings to an area of water where they made 20-mile racetrack patterns. So in other words, they would fly straight for 20 miles, like straight east for 20 miles, make a 180-degree turn, fly west for 20 miles, and keep doing this over and over and over. They just keep making left turns. And they did this at 7,400 feet, where they had leveled off at initially when he put the altitude hold on. At that time... Air traffic controller also informed them that pieces of debris from an airplane were found by residents of Betam Island, Indonesia. Great. When the failure had occurred, cabin crew and passengers were seated and buckled, and many had witnessed what had happened. They saw damage to the left wing and fuel escaping from the wing. Yep. So no, it was not the ECAM freaking out. No, it was not the ECAM. There was no, actual something damage. Something was actually wrong. Yes. Oh, no. Wait, they... Okay, I might have just missed you just saying this. Did they have someone go back and check the wing? Not yet. Oh, so how'd they find out that that was... Were the passengers the one that saw that? The passengers that? are the ones that oh. saw that, and the cabin crew. And Please tell me someone actually went up to the cockpit and went, Hey, there's so, a problem here. my next note is, the cabin crew attempted to contact the cockpit at that time that the damage occurred. Oh, and occurred. the phone was dead, wasn't it? No, but the flight crew did not respond, oh. as they were handling the situation and focusing on flying the airplane. I mean, okay... That's probably a good thing, but there's five people in that in the cockpit. No one can answer the phone. <laughs> yeah, you would think, but yeah, they were really busy. A while. I can just imagine everyone freaking out. What's going on? We don't know what's happening. Where right. are we going? <laughs> <laughs> right. A while later, while in the holding pattern, the first officer continued to process the ECAM messages that seemed to show nearly every system in the airplane is having a failure of some kind. Meanwhile, the second officer went to the cabin to visually examine the damage. So now. You have somebody leave the cockpit and go to look at the damage to the airplane. Which is not great. Yes. However, I found this one interesting. They didn't mention this in the episode. As he passed through the top deck of the cabin, a passenger who was also a pilot for the airline brought his attention to the tail-mounted camera view that was being displayed on his seat back screen, which showed fuel trailing from the left wing. So, back up for a second. This is actually really cool. 
So this plane had a tail-mounted camera. That mm-hmm. meant that the people inside on their little entertainment systems on their seatbacks, mm-hmm. they could watch the plane as it was taking off and flying and whatever. Yeah. So they were looking at this camera and they're like, hey... Yeah, if you go look it up on YouTube, go look up, like, A380 tail camera. There are so many videos of just people's views, like, as it would take off and such. And it's really cool, but it's actually a useful tool in the cockpit because this airplane is so big, when they taxi, they really have a hard time being able to tell if they're on the taxiway or not. And this is a good reference for them because it's a wide view that shows them the wings and everything. It shows them where they are in the runway, taxiway, everything, it helps them to keep themselves in the lines. So but a in, passenger could see from that camera? Yep. Yep, because they just have it on their displays. On all the airlines that have it, they can. you can oh, see it on the... That would freak me out. Turn it, like, you're just going through the screens, right? Mm-hmm. You see a wing <laughs> with the fuel coming out, you're like... Yep. Uh. Yeah, that was bad. At least he was a pilot for the airline, so he probably didn't freak out as much as some okay. other people exactly. would. But going back, there's 460-some people on board. 440. There's 469 occupants. Yes. So I'm sure more than just him was looking at that like, that's probably not good. Yeah, but it sounds like he would keep his cool. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't cause major panic. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I mean, any good flight crew would do that. And as a matter of fact, in the episode, they mentioned that one of the passengers asked the the second officer as he was walking through the cabin if everything was going to be okay. And he said, "Yes, we're okay." So I mean, it's it's their it's their duty to keep everybody calm and safe. The second officer then went down to the main deck, and he could see the damage to the wing from there, and the fuel spilling from the wing, mainly underneath the wing, around where the number two engine was mounted. He described it as about a half meter wide flow of fuel pouring out of the wings. He could not, however, see the engine itself anywhere within the cabin. Because the wing is huge. Yes, the wing is massive. The captain and the check airmen on board made several announcements over the PA to inform the passengers and cabin crew of the situation, and just to keep them informed and calm. Once the flight crew knew of the fuel leak issue, they opted not to perform any further fuel transfers as they were doing earlier, as they were unsure of the integrity of the fuel system. In other words, they just weren't sure if something would fail in the fuel system. They were also unable to jettison any fuel due to damage to the fuel management system, This meant they had to spend extra time in the air because they also had too much weight in fuel to land safely. They couldn't just dump fuel. Yeah, they couldn't. Because they're overland, right? No. No. Because it was broken. The pump to dump fuel was broken. The fuel management system was broken. So they, yeah, they were unable to dump any fuel. So they just have to fly around for a while. Yep. That sucks. That's exactly right. That sucks for those passengers. That would make me very frustrated. I mean... Yes, but you also want to be safe, obviously. Well, okay, yes. Us being us. Mm-hmm. I would be frustrated, but I would understand. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, I, I get it. We're having a problem. We need to fly around for a while. But right. if any of you guys are like me, I get huge headaches if I'm in the air too long. Mm-hmm. And so now, A380 is probably pretty comfortable. It is. But well, and remember that also they're only at 7,400 feet. Rather than above 8,000, which the cabin's pressurized usually to 8,000 feet. They're below that, so the cabin's actually pressurized even lower. So they're actually all pretty comfortable, all things considered. Yeah, it probably would still be a little frustrating. But I mean, it's better to be sure. be frustrated and safe than unsafe but, and not frustrated. But you have to remember, too, I mean, they've still only been on the airplane for a little while, and they were planning to be on the airplane for many hours anyways to get back to Sydney. That's true. 
The flight crew then received an Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS, message from Qantas Operations. That message from Operations told them that Operations received from the plane automatically a list of faults, the same faults that they were going through the ECAM system. The crew was busy with the ECAM procedures, so they only acknowledged this, mess- this message from the Operations with no further feedback. So Operations was like, okay, they acknowledged it. Do they actually have any of the problems? People at operations and people in Sydney going about their day heard that debris was found in Indonesia, and it began to be believed that a Qantas flight had crashed. Oh, no. (laughs) No. Don't, don't, don't. I don't know how that got out. Well, news travels fast. (laughs) Don't, don't. Until you actually see pictures or something. Don't well, there were pictures jump. starting to come out of Indonesia of big pieces of engines in neighborhoods. Yeah, but there's no fuselage. Well, they didn't know that yet. Well, there's even less from MH370, so... Yep. Yeah, but that's... I feel it's like It's over a the same ocean. They, there wasn't enough information, basically, for people to know yet. So don't freak out before you know. Right. That's my point. It took about 50 minutes for the flight crew to work through all of the initial ECAM procedures. So that 30 minutes, they said, it was much longer. Which, in this situation, could have gone worse, but in other situations, it's extremely dangerous. You're just sitting there going through a computer. Yeah, they're just going through the computer messages, spending so much time just trying to go through those procedures and figure everything out. But if you're in an actual emergency situation... You ain't got time for that! This is really dangerous. They thankfully had the time, but this proved to be an issue with the Airbus. Too much automation. Yes. The flight crew then prepared the airplane for landing after getting through all the ECAM messages. One of the check pilots ran different scenarios through the A380 landing computer, which can just be done on a laptop, basically, and initially determined that the airplane was too heavy to make the landing. He then plugged in more realistic numbers that showed the airplane landing with about four to 500 feet remaining. But the first officer noted that the, uh, the required speed for this was below 150 knots, which would have had the airplane in a stall. So he suggested that they try running the numbers with 167 knots instead. They found that this would leave them with about 300 feet left, so this was still enough to, in theory, perform the landing, and the airplane wouldn't stall. The captain then decided to attempt to maneuver the airplane a bit to see what the airplane was capable of doing with all the system failures that were going on. This is called a control check. Yep, a control check. This surprised the rest of the crew as they were all concerned of this putting the airplane in a dangerous situation. It was no doubt risky, but also important to determine the amount of control that they would have upon landing. He carefully maneuvered the airplane back and forth and up and down. The airplane was sluggish, moving left to right, but it was controllable. This was very valuable information. The flight crew then advised air traffic controllers that they wanted to land on runway 20 center, and they requested the emergency services be ready. They explained the remainder of their plan to air traffic controllers, and the air traffic controllers agreed. They requested a long approach of 20 miles to allow plenty of time for lining up and preparations, be it that they didn't have a whole lot of control of the airplane, they wanted to make sure that they were going to be lined up with that runway, so they had 20 miles straight line flying to the runway to do it. They also wanted to make sure that they had the time to run through preparing the airplane. The flight crew gradually configured the airplane for landing, extending the flaps and extending the landing gear, testing the flight controls each time to determine how much the airplane was capable of performing, with the new configuration. As they got slower, the controls became more and more sluggish. This is pretty normal because the airplane doesn't have as much air going over the wings as it gets slower. But also now you have so many other factors, so the airplane just gets 
slower and slower and slower to react. They used the, auto, the autopilot when in stabilized flight to work through the continuing ECAM procedures, but the captain would disconnect it each time to perform the maneuvering checks or the control checks, and then he would re-engage it again. So they'd have to go down to where they were left off, right, would be my guess? But what do you mean? Like, like going through the ECAM. Oh, yeah. Basically, if you switched it off and switched it back on, you'd have to go back and see where you were. I mean, you'd have to continue the list. Yes. In theory, they could do some of it still while he was doing that. It's just mostly, you know, checklists and such to make sure they're configured correctly. They were vectored by air traffic controllers for the 20 nautical mile final and a progressive descent to 4000 feet. And then they continued the approach as normal. The captain then set the number one and number four engines to a symmetrical thrust and then controlled the aircraft's actual speed with the number three engine. So there was only one engine that was actually being used to control speed on the airplane. It was determined that in order to make the landing, they would need to be within 3% of their target speed of 167 knots. So a really pretty tight margin. That's like plus or minus two knots. Yeah, they didn't have much to mess around with. If they went too far below, the airplane would be way too slow and it would stall. Nice. If they went too far above, they would overrun the runway. They had a really fine target. Thankfully, with modern airplanes, they're pretty smart, and you can actually get them to do that. As they were on short final, the autopilot, the autopilot automatically disconnected due to the angle of attack. So, in other words, because of the way the airplane was configured, the airplane was nosed higher than expected. And so, this meant that the airplane was... It, the autopilot disconnected automatically, assuming that the airplane wasn't in a configuration that could be stabilized by the autopilot. They managed to re-engage the autopilot immediately after, but it then disconnected again a short time later, and this time they elected to just leave it disconnected, as they were still only 800 feet from the ground anyways, and they were already maneuvering to land. The captain then had full manual control of the aircraft and hand-flew the airplane the rest of the way to the landing. The airplane touched down at 11.46 a.m. and 47 seconds, nearly two hours after taking off, and about an hour and a half after the initial engine failure. So they were in the air for quite a while with this problem. The captain immediately applied the brakes and selected thrust reverser on the number three engine. That was So on the A380, there's only two engines that actually have thrust reversers, the number two and the number three, both of the inboard engines. And one of them was dead. One of the engines was dead. So he used the number three engine to thrust use his thrust reverser. The flight crew then noted that the airplane was not decelerating very quickly... In the initial landing roll, the captain then applied full braking power with his feet, and the crew panicked a bit as it seemed that they might overrun, but as they dropped below 60 knots, the captain knew that they would stop before the end of the runway. The number three engine was gradually brought back out of max reverse thrust to idle, and manual braking was continued by the captain until the airplane came to a complete stop on the runway about 150 meters or about 400 feet from the end of the runway. So their estimations were pretty good. It a little close, but... It was still, close. But their estimations it. were correct. Well, they were able to stop. Yes. So, hey. It's important. <laughs> Emergency crews immediately approached the airplane. An evacuation was not initiated yet, as it was not yet safe. You thought we were done? Oh, yeah. We're not done yet. This disaster ain't over yet. Nope. The crew caught their breath, then began the sequence to shut down the engines. As they did this, only the emergency electrical power remained on and this rendered all but one of the cockpit displays inoperative. This meant that there was also only one radio active in the cockpit. Ugh. 
As the screens went black, it was noted that one of the left main brake temperatures was over 900 degrees Celsius and rising. And what they knew is that they also had a fuel leak. So they're on the dripping left wing. fuel onto hot brakes. Onto very hot brakes. There's a potential that there could be flyer, fire. Fire! <laughs> After some confusion over the radios, the crew were able to contact the emergency services and they requested that the brakes be sprayed, as well as the fuel, with fire retardant foam. They did so. The emergency service obliged, but also asked for the number one engine to be shut down. It wasn't off. The crew was baffled by this, as they had shut down the number one engine. But sure enough, (laughs) it was still running. The captain knew that this meant it was definitely unsafe to evacuate the airplane, and ordered everyone to remain seated. Oh, I would be so frustrated. Oh, if you think you'd frustrate it then, just Oh gosh, you've landed, the engines are supposed to be off, right? Mm -hmm. And they won't let you get off the plane. Yes, but this is unbelievably critical, because he actually did the safest thing. Oh, I'm sure. You shouldn't get off the plane if an engine's still going. Well, and that's not the only reason. It's incredibly there's also dangerous. Emergency crews spraying foam. There's hot brakes. There's fire, potentially, leaking fuel. There's a lot of things going on. Just keep them in the plane. <laughs> yes, he felt that it was actually safer to keep the passengers on board rather than let them out. And this actually proved to be a good thing. He wanted to avoid the injuries that came with evacuations, as every time there is an evacuation, there's always a handful of people that get injured in the process. Because slides aren't um, yeah, faultless. <laughs> no. People do break bones and stuff when they go evacuate airplanes, especially when you're talking about an airplane as tall as the A380. Yeah, because there's people evacuating from the higher deck. And yep. that those slides are steep. Yes. And you gotta jump straight down. You can't scoot. We've talked about this before. You can't scoot and go down. You gotta jump. Yep, jump and go. Well, and you think about it, and you're like, eh, that's not that bad. But when your 90-year-old grandmother's on this plane... Yeah, then it's bad. bad. Well, even... I would be scared, right? We're in our early 20s, and if you're on the upper deck, can you imagine how freaking scary that is to jump straight down? Yeah, That's scary. But still. We probably wouldn't break a bone, but... I'd still be scared. So in the middle of their discussion, they went through and they recycled the off switch for the number one engine, but the engine still did not shut down. The crew elected to have a single door disembarkation from the right side of the the plane as the fire risk was now low, but the right side was clear of all the problems, so they felt that it was safe to leave out the right side, but they wanted to do it with a single set of stairs rather than using a slide or anything like that. The stairs arrived about 35 minutes after landing, and the first bus arrived about 10 minutes later. They began disembarking the airplane from the forward right door about 50 minutes after landing. So they were still in the airplane for another 50 minutes after landing. It's almost an hour. Yeah, almost an hour. This was a big part of keeping the passengers safe, though. Yeah, so it's frustrating, Mm -hmm. but... But you're alive. Yeah, you're not dead, so there's that. Yep, they were all bussed back to the terminals. Granted, they didn't have any other luggage, and a lot of them didn't have luggage actually for a long time. But they can't. Okay, but not a priority. <laughs> not, but did you die? Right. <laughs> no. Eventually, they'll get your baggage to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the flight crew asked that all the cabin crew members man their respective doors, and that they keep them armed in the event that the evacuation slides were needed to be used due to the fire risk. So, in other words. In the event that things got worse, somehow, they felt that the risk was going down. But in the event that things got worse, they wanted to make sure that the doors were still armed so that if they were opened, the slides would release. 
and people could evacuate quickly, so they asked all the cabin crew to also man their respective doors until all the passengers were off. All 20-plus of them. Yeah, all 20-plus cabin crew members. Yeah, well, you know, it's best to be safe than sorry. It is. I feel like this crew was pretty uh, on top of it when it came to safety. Yep. So they managed to get everybody off the airplane in about 13 minutes, so then the cabin crew were able to get off. It's pretty nice. Off of one door? Yeah. Considering... (laughs) 440 passengers? One door, 440 passengers, plus 20-plus crew. Yeah, and you're talking about, you know, two rows of... of, uh, Or two aisles on each deck. So four aisles worth of passengers you have to get off the plane. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Through one door. Yeah. Yeah, they did pretty good. The fight to shut down the number one engine then continued while the passengers were disembarking. They contacted their operations, the Qantas operations office, via a cell phone and discussed what to do. They ran them through a series of different options for shutting down the engine in the cockpit, none of which seemed to work. They then had maintenance personnel arrive on site and attempted to shut it down with various methods. None of that worked. It was then suggested by operations to have the fire trucks drown the engine with water to try to shut it down. They attempted this, but engines are intended to handle very harsh conditions, including rain, This was quickly determined not to work. Operations then suggested using the fire-retardant foam instead that was carried by the fire trucks. This did the trick. They finally shut the engines down at 2.53 p.m. in the afternoon, three hours after landing. Oh, man. Yep. Yikes. Nobody was injured in this incident. Thank God. The number two engine was damaged beyond repair. Yeah. Ugh. The shrapnel from the number two engine punctured the wing, severed hydraulic lines and electric lines. Yeah, do the trick. Which also severed control to the number one engine, which yep. is why they couldn't shut it down. Oh, no. That's why the number one engine had no control. It was oh, just gone. there should be a fail safe for that. That's one of the things they worked into this. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh. There was damage to the landing gear, the wing, and other portions of the airplane. Some small fragments were entered the lower fuselage. Pieces of the engine were found on the ground in Indonesia, on the island of Batam. Several large pieces had fallen on and damaged a car, houses, and a school building. Oh. Nobody was injured, though. That's that's good. good. That's, like, surprising. In, In all of this, nobody was injured. Good for them. Yep. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, this investigation was performed by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, or the ATSB. We won't hear of them a lot. The engine in question was a Rolls-Royce Trent 900, specifically a 972-84 variant capable of a takeoff thrust of 76,752 pounds. Holy cow. Yeah. It's a lot of power. And it was made in the UK in June of 2006. It actually was initially the number four engine on this plane when it was released into service in September of 2008. It was removed a year later to be serviced, then lay in storage until February of 2010 when it was put into the number two position of the same plane, the accident plane. Yep. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. We have a bunch of pictures of this engine on our website so you can see for yourself how um, not great this looks. Uh, 
Huh. Part of it's gone. The back half of it's just disappeared. There was a lot of evident damage to the thrust reverser and cold air systems of the engine before the investigators even got around to disassembling the thing. Once they took it apart, they found extensive damage to the low-pressure turbine front panel, the high-pressure intermediate pressure bearing support, and the high-pressure turbine. That's a lot, I know, but the gist of it is it was all in the back half of the engine. Now, the real beginning of wreckage investigation came from wreckage not actually on the plane when they landed. A piece of the intermediate pressure turbine disc was recovered from Batam Island, Indonesia. By the way, this was the only piece of this found. Yes. And this is only half of it, right? It's not even half. It's only 43% of it. And it was the rest of it was never found. This particular piece weighed in at about 70 kilograms or about 150 pounds. And okay. as I said, is only 43% of the disc. You might be having UA-232 flashbacks. Yep. Yep. From this, they oh, also, it is made of nickel alloy. Somewhat similar to UA-232. I was going to say, is this going to be a, a fatigue thing? Just you wait. Just you wait. Okay. From this, they found radial fractures inter indicating an overstress failure. But unlike UA-232, there were no signs of defect in the material that the damage could be attributed to. In that deep metallurgical dive for information, investigators found something a little more interesting. On the molecular level, there was evidence that this disc had been exposed to some very high temperatures. Now, yes, I realize this is in the engine, which gets hot, but we're talking 1125 degrees Celsius or just over 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Yeah. It's oh, it's so hot. That's extreme heat. Oh. This is harder, hotter than that part of the engine would normally be. Coupled with that, the fracture pattern was not just overstress, but specifically the kind that would come from an overspeed failure. As in, it was going so fast it broke. Yep. The disc was actually wider than it should have been. It grew by one, almost two centimeters. Because of the heat? And the speed. Oh! The speed literally stretched the metal. Oh! No! Moving. That sounds horrible. No wonder it broke. Yeah. <laughs> but why? Moving on. When they looked at the part of the engine the disc had separated from, investigators found that parts of the high-pressure intermediate pressure bearing hub had a coating of metal or melted and resolidified material on it. Oh, and the outer hub was, quote, breached, revealing the inner hub underneath. So in other words... It had gone through the outside. And there was soot everywhere. Yes. Which is kind of weird. Well, to figure out how it got so hot, investigators continued digging into that part of the engine. Literally. They just kept pulling out parts to find out what broke first. <laughs> Bunches of parts were broken, but they were looking for a specific kind of broken, and they found it on a smaller part. I am now showing Miranda a picture of the oil feed stub pipe. It's a pipe actually on the other side of that hub I was just talking about, and it was broken in three places. Oh, no. Now, I'm going to try to describe it to you guys who aren't looking at the pictures the best as I can. The first crack was where it was welded to the hub, and that was about 180 degrees around the pipe. Then the crack went a little bit back towards the shoulder, kind of a ribbing on the pipe, where there are two sections of cracks. One had a blue surface, and the other had a straw-colored surface. I'm going to have Miranda describe the surface of the crack, starting with the weld fracture, then going clockwise. So, the weld fracture looks kind of like, what, what am I, t it's like when you break something that's metal, and it's sheared. Yeah, so edge. it's sharp. And it's, it's larger, so you have this pipe, and that edge is a little bit higher up the shoulder, and then as you go around, you get 
slight it's like this diagonal just cut down the pipe to the shoulder and then it's a gradient from the blue colored stuff to the straw colored stuff how would you describe how jagged each section is it's so jagged it's what's a a good way to put it like a serrated knife (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that would probably be it. Yes. Like what about the, the third the far section? Edge what do you notice about serrated. What do you notice about that third section? The blue one? The straw one. The straw one? It looks like it 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 literally just came off. It looks pretty me. smooth, right? It looks very smooth. It looks like if you were to just detach two things that are supposed to be together, it doesn't look like anything broke off from it, basically. What do we know about very straight-edged fractures? Oh, no. Not good. It's a fatigue crack! It is a fatigue crack. <laughs> there was most of your participation points. Thank you. <laughs> I hope I did I hope I, I did was trying justice. to like just guide you to, like, you could visually see the fatigue crack. Like, it's obvious compared to the other two sections of cracking, the difference. Yeah, so the blue section's like a gradient, and then... The weld fracture literally just looks like something got sheared off. But the straw-colored one is looks like... It's it, almost like it got sanded down. It's yeah. like polished. Yeah. It, it, if you were to compare it to the outer shoulder, it's basically the same. This is actually mm-hmm. one of the first times that I've seen really good wreckage photos that show the difference between um, overstress fractures versus fatigue fractures. So that's pretty cool. So at this point, it was pretty easy for investigators to figure out what they were looking at. But it was even easier once they looked down the bore of the pipe so they could see the thickness of the pipe. It's un- it looks like it's uneven. Actually, can, can you go more into depth about that, Miranda? So when you look, this is looking straight down the pipe, right? Mm-hmm. So you see the top half where the cracks are. But then you see like there's an edge on the inside. So it looks... Like, the pipe is thinner on one side and thicker as you get inside. I hope that makes sense. So how the heck would this happen? Well, let me explain how this end of the pipe is made before it's welded to the hub. You start with just a plain, haha, a plain old pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Oh, God. (laughs) Plain old pipe. Then you drill a counterbore in a little bit, making the hole a little bigger and the pipe a little thinner. From there, you ream in, which is another kind of drill, but it also kind of polishes it nicely. But you don't do that as far down as the counterbore goes. You really only need to ream in a little bit so that you have a good welding surface. That was two processes I just described. Those two are pretty reliant on it being centered on the pipe or being this concentric. This is not centered. But what if they weren't? The two <laughs> parts of this pipe one of them is centered, the other one is not. So, actually, investigators found that both the drilling and the reaming were offset ever so slightly from the center of the original pipe. So, both processes were not concentric. So, it made this big of a difference? Yes. Yeah. Because you're talking about, so, let's say you have them both centered, but then you go plus one to the right and then plus one to the left. Now you have a massive difference between the centers for both of those. Oh, but it's still technically within tolerance. So whenever you have an engineering drawing that you're manufacturing off of, you're given, it can be this plus or minus that. This was all within that tolerance. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, this picture that I have pulled up 
those are the measurements of thickness in millimeters. So on the thickest measurement of this pipe, it is thickest at 1.42 millimeters. The thinnest part is 0.35 millimeters. That's like paper thin. Yeah. Yep. It, it's it not doesn't great. look right. It just does not look right. Oh, it's not right. Well, clearly. <laughs> Here's a kind of a better picture so you can see the different... Oh, no. So you can see where the different processes occurred. Oh, no. There that. shouldn't be a lip. They cleaned that pipe up really nice. Yeah, they, they did. did. <laughs> Good polishing job. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another picture. This one actually looks more like an engineering drawing, so you can kind of see. So this has pluses in the middle where the centers Ooh, are. Yeah. You can see it's not on the center. No. Well, you can see, like, what I was saying before the inner pipe diameter compared to the outside diameter and they're like different on each side so it just looks like they're two different pipes <laughs> right like that came together <laughs> yeah so again i know it's kind of hard to imagine from just the description so i highly recommend looking at our website for the pictures so you can get a good image of what's going on essentially here's a simple man's explanation it's supposed to be a perfect circle circle down the middle of the tube and instead it's an oval and in that oval, it's like offset to one side yeah. so that the tube is really thin on one side and it's really thick on the other. Yeah, it doesn't look centered at all. It's not. So we worked backward in time a little bit. Let's go forward and tell the story of what happened inside this poor engine. So the oil feed stub pipe was made poorly so that one side of it is thinner than it should be. Well, this part moves in the engine ever so slightly during takeoff thrust. Oh, no. It moves up to about six millimeters. Well, that induces a stress on the pipe, a stress that it is designed to handle at a certain thickness. Yeah, I was like, not at that thin. <laughs> nope. So it's not that thick, so it cracked. And this allowed a fine spray of oil into the buffer space, and the oil ignited at 365 <gasps> degrees Celsius. Oh, no. The fire made its way through the hub, melting all the seals in its path until the flame became directly pointed directly at the intermediate pressure turbine drive arm, reducing the strength of that material. Well, that drive shaft or drive arm failing is what's attached to the intermediate pressure turbine disc, that giant disc that broke. When that happens, the system is no longer balanced between the compressor load and the compressor speed. So there's a balance between the two. If one goes lower, the other one goes higher. So if you lose the load, the speed goes up. Yep. So they lost the load. Oh no. So the speed no or so the disc no longer restrained by that drive arm sped up and sped up and sped up and sped up so much that it broke and chaos ensued. Yep. Oh no. So that's what I got. The oil went boom. The oil made it go boom. Oh, no. No, yeah. no. The oil made it hot. It got loose. It sped up. It went boom. It went boom. All this for less than a millimeter of pipe. Yes. That's ridiculous. And all of this actually happened very, very quickly, too. Of course it does. It's We explain it. It sounds like it takes forever. It never takes forever. No. It takes maybe 30 seconds. Exactly. And and, and that's why everything was going fine. And then, and then it wasn't. Boom. <laughs> yep. Well, and I said that that crack occurs during takeoff because that's when that pipe moves yep so from there that's when and the oil well, we know of spraying. cracks eventually it gets to a point where yep. it just can't take it anymore yep. yep so the whole thing broke Yikes. yep and shattered in a very catastrophic way though i think that the shattering of the oil pipe was actually more due to the engine 
just going boom. Probably. They determined that it only needed a very small crack to let loose that spray of oil for this catastrophe to occur. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And this is known as an uncontained engine failure. So I think in the in the first episode we did, I called it like an uncontained engine eruption. Just to be clear, that's not like the actual formal term. This is the uncontained engine failure. So in other words, the engine actually literally just failed and pieces separated and it burst. burst. Boom. It was not contained by the engine itself. Now, I didn't talk a whole lot about all, all the pieces that were damaged by the engine there was a lot. doing this, but they basically lost a lot of controls of a bunch of stuff. They lost yes. hydraulics. It uh, was a nightmare. Some of the images in the report are really interesting because it went through like bundles of cable that are probably like four inches thick. I mean, it just went right through them. And then uh, not only that, but when we said that it pierced the fuel tank, it went all the way through the wing from bottom to top, all the way out the top of the wing. So th- actually the passengers in the cabin could see metal peeled back from the top of the wing where fuel was coming out. I was yes. going to say, was there a hole or something? There's yeah. actually, a, there's some images from the people on the plane. <gasps> oh, that would freak me out. No, thank you. So when, oh, no. When we said that there was damage to the wing. Now, mind you, this is very small damage, so the airplane was still very much controllable, because the wing on the A380 is also massive. Yes. You're talking so about one of the it's biggest... It's a relatively small hole compared to the rest of the wing, but still... But you can see it, and it's very evident. Yeah, you're talking about a wing that's bigger than almost any other wing mounted on an airplane ever, though. Let me see here, because... Oh, why did it do Ouch. that? Ouch. Yes. So yeah, that I mean that's not it's not one of my longest engineering explanations, but I feel like it was pretty in depth. Yeah, there's so many pictures in here too from it. Like there's pictures of it in flight that somebody took of it <gasps> spewing fuel. Ah! I mean, a, we're talking about 2010. People had their phones. They there's a video pictures. of the landing from the left side of the plane on YouTube, and you can see just fuel spraying out the back yeah. of the wing. This is the uh, flight path they had, by the way. <laughs> Circle 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 circle, 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 circle. Well, and at first they... the engine event happened. Ooh. At first, they didn't even know if they could do a circle because they had limited flight controls. Because you don't have hydraulics. Hey, go back to the first episode to hear more about that. There's a lot of callbacks to that tonight. Ooh. Here's an image looking up through the fuel tank to the top <gasps> of where it went through and through. Oh my god. Okay, I will put all of these on. These are all uh, in the website. report. Yeah, they'll just, be just scroll through the, the report and you'll find all the pictures. I Here's like the when I can do of... that because it. Oh no! Here's the bundles of wire it went through. Holy cow! It's so... no wonder everything failed. Yeah, no, no, it's no wonder that like more things didn't fail. Yeah. Another thing they talked about in the um, air disasters episode was that pilots, when they were training for the A380 and they were trained to go through ECAM errors. It was like two or three errors simultaneously, right? Like not a enough that you need to concentrate, but not so much that it overtakes the in, your entire concentration. Well, in this flight, they had fifty-eight error messages. Yeah, so not just two or three; they had fifty-eight failure messages to go through. Oh. So that meant fifty-eight different procedures to go through as well. That's oh. what took them an hour. Ew! It severed hydraulic lines. It severed. Yeah, well, it makes sense why they wouldn't be able to put out the fire, because it probably, that side of the plane basically wasn't responsive. Essentially. So they would try to put out the fire, but the fire extinguisher didn't work, because uh, that side of the plane just didn't work. Basically. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Just great. Yep. 
So for findings, so these aren't like clear-cut like one, two, three, four, five findings. They had them in a few different sections, but I'm just breaking them all down. They found that a fatigue crack had formed over time in the thin wall portion of the stub pipe, and the normal movement of the airplane and engine caused the crack to open. Yes. Releasing oil. A fire started in the high-pressure, intermediate-pressure portion of the engine, causing severe damage to the intermediate-pressure turbine disc. That's the one that separated. They found that the intermediate-pressure turbine disc separated from the drive arm and began to accelerate. They found that this caused the engine to perform in a different manner than the manufacturer intended or tested. This resulted in the turbine disc exceeding its designed rotational capabilities, causing it to burst in a very dangerous manner that did major damage to the engine and the aircraft. They found that movement of the hub during the machining process enabled the incorrect manufacturing of the stub pipe, resulting in the thin wall failing in the counterbore portion of the pipe. It was likely that the CMM detected and reported a nonconformance in the part during manufacturing, but this nonconformance was not noticed by the personnel operating the machine. So in other words, there's a measuring machine. Coordinate measuring machine. Coordinate measuring machine, the CMM, that detected that there was a difference when they were machining the pipes, and it likely told them that there was a nonconformance in the parts, so that, so in other words, the parts weren't to spec. However, this was for some reason ignored. Huh. Maybe not ignore it? Yeah. They found that the statistical analysis used to estimate maximum likely oil feed stub pipe counter bore misalignment and resulting thin wall section did not adequately represent the population of actual misalignments in engines already released into service, nor did it implicitly provide a level of uncertainty in the results. So in other words, they had run tests and such to see, okay, well, what's going to happen if this is manufactured poorly? Well, eh, the results aren't that bad. Well, yeah, they are, and they're already on the airplanes. Uh, in fact. <laughs> yep. Wrong. They found that the language used to define the size of the nonconformance on the retrospective concession form did not effectively communicate the uncertainty of the statistical analysis to those assessing and approving the concession. So... This is a really roundabout way of saying that they didn't even notice that there was a problem because they didn't understand what the actual parameters were for the tube. So when they were manufacturing it, the people that were in charge of checking it didn't even know what they were checking in in reality. Which is terrible. Yes. Yeah. They found that the engine manufacturer did not have a requirement for an expert review of statistical analysis used in retrospective concession applications, so they didn't have to check the work. Which in... Any industry that you have to look for nonconformance in this kind of thing is terrible. Yes. There are... So I've worked at an engineering company before, and there are literally entire teams dedicated to nonconformance. Yep. We have a team that's And they usually have... If if they don't at least have a statistician to look at these statistics, they, everyone on the team knows the statistics and the requirements of each part and blah, blah, blah. Right. They found that the engine manufacturer's process for retrospective concession did not specify when in the process the chief engineer and business quality director approvals were to be obtained. Having them as the final approval in the process resulted in an an increased probability that the fleet-wide risk assessment would not occur. So they didn't even have designed in their processes when the design or the part needed to be checked by the engineers or the lead quality assurance inspectors. That's great. That's also usually written into manufacturing procedures. Yes, it is. It's not just drill this and pass it off to the next person. No, it's There's... usually have a quality check. Yeah, and it's like pull every hundred parts and have it checked or something like that. Right. 
It's probably less for airplane parts. Probably. I've worked in medical devices where they were cranking out like 300 parts an hour. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. They found that the retrospective concession was not approved by the chief engineer and business quality director as required by the group quality procedures relating to retrospective concession, denying them the opportunity to assess the risk to the in-service fleet. They just didn't even have the opportunity to check, basically. They found that many other Trent 900 engines were found with the same issue with the oil feed stud pipe. Many other. They found that there were enormous issues with communication and the quality programs at Rolls-Royce, period. So Rolls-Royce is a really high-regarded company in reality, and they've been producing airplane engines for a very long time. We've talked about them before on an earlier episode. Yes. Oh, and something I forgot to mention, this entire time... Qantas grounded all their A380s. Yes. Good for Qantas. Like, well, but like on. during the investigation, they were like, yeah, let's not fly these right now. So Rolls-Royce is this really hard, highly regarded company, and yet they were having severe quality issues. Severe quality issues. They found that modeling of the risks of, un- of uncontained engine failures was significantly less impactful than the results of Qantas Flight 32, so a lessons learned should be created for this and circulated. So in other words, they wanted this to be a known thing that essentially, when they ran all the risk assessments for the engines for these, that it was pretty well assumed that the engine would be very, very safe. Well, it turned out... That it wasn't. And we'll talk about it again sometime, but... This wasn't even the last time that an engine failed on an A380 in a catastrophic way. Yikes. That came later. In any case, this, though, I think was pinnacle in, like, shifting the perspective of, okay, it comes down to the smallest parts in the engine. They're really high-precision machines, and they have to be maintained that way. Built and maintained that way. They found that the landing characteristics and the calculations for or of such were too conservative and could result in incorrect inputs to the airplane. If they had gone with the calculations that actually would have had them landing, they would have stalled the airplane. And that would have been bad. And they nearly stalled the the airplane on their approach, actually, multiple times as they were adjusting speed and trying to keep the target 167. They found that a hot piece of the turbine disc passed through a fuel tank and resulted in a minor localized fire that was contained and self-extinguished. Conditions in the tank were not adequate for a significant damaging fire. So yes, the fuel tank did light on fire when a piece of the turbine disc went through it. Yes, but fuel is also liquid, and when it's in a liquid form, doesn't usually light on fire. Correct. And the fumes that were within the tank, it wasn't enough for them to be a problem. So, Yeah, we've talked about that, too. If you so try it, to light jet fuel on fire just in its normal form, it won't light. Right. So it's self-extinguished. Yep, it's self-extinguished. They found that there was a short-duration oil fire in the number two engine that was self-extinguished, mostly because the engine erupted. But that was the fire that caused the... Yes. Boom. Yep. They found that despite the damage, the plane was capable of continued safe flight. That's important. The airplane flew. We knew that. They found that the CVR recording length was not sufficient enough to capture the entire incident. Be it that the entire incident was like five hours long. I don't really blame it. It kind of makes sense. It's very rare that incidents take this long, but it entirely had to do with that number one engine shutting down. That was the longest portion of everything. They found that the crew's decision to delay disembarkation of the plane until it could be done with stairs was likely a safe decision, as there was no immediate threat to the plane, and doing a traditional evacuation could have resulted in injuries. Yikes. Yep. They found that the flight and cabin crew managed the incident in a competent manner and properly completed their duties per the operating instructions. Okay, that was an understatement. They did a fantastic job. Yes, this is the last finding, so let's talk about it a little bit, but their CRM was unbelievably on point. They were on cool. 
point. All five of them were cool, calm, and collected the whole time, and the captain immediately took action. He immediately, what he did was immediately fly the plane. He put it in a stabilized state that meant that they could determine what was wrong with the airplane and fix it, or rather eliminate the problem. Each of the crew members, including the Czech pilots, played a crucial role into making sure this happened properly. It took all of their combined experience to land this plane and land it safely and make sure everyone got off. Yeah, absolutely, in a safe manner. And they did all this, I mean, they all were part of this, all five of them in the the cockpit. They all lent a hand to decision-making, to checking the damage, to everything. They just made sure that this airplane was safe. And they had the time, and they knew they had the time, so it really helped them, but their crew resource management was unbelievably good. Really, really good. They were hailed as heroes, and still are today, of course, in, in Australia. And the captain has actually written a book entirely about the flight, and he openly does interviews and such. I would love to interview him sometime. I think it'd be really cool. But he's very willing to talk about it because of airplane safety and aviation safety, and he talks about how important it is and how important it is to him and how he feels his crew did a good job and how aviation safety should be handled. So there is no probable cause. (sighs) In this report. Now, to be fair, I mean, first of all, this report was actually very, very good. It was way too detailed, if you ask me. But it was a very good report. Their reports are also really nicely written. They're also very easy to navigate, because you can just click through stuff. Uh, But moreover, they don't have a probable cause, I think, for a few reasons. I think... I think the findings summed it up nicely. I think they believe that the findings and then the safety actions speak for themselves. And they do. I think that the analysis speaks for itself. They don't need a definitive probable cause in some of these incidents. And moreover, this was not a fatal accident. So this was important, but didn't need to have a probable cause for an accident. This was an incident. So recommendations, or rather what they call safety actions. So they didn't really recommend much. They just explained how what safety actions were taken after the accident and what they believe should be done. Qantas grounded their entire A380 fleet immediately after the accident, literally the day of, and waited to return them to service until November 27th, so later that month. They did their own investigation as well, as well as analysis, and they did so with the assistance and approval of the engine manufacturer. Rolls-Royce. Yep. As well as the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Also, good on Qantas. Yeah. They're always... Immediately being like, there's clearly something wrong here. We're going to ground them, make sure that everything's okay before we just fly them again. Because there's a lot of airlines who would be like, we don't know, so we're just going to keep flying them anyway. I mean, Qantas has always been this way. They're always very safety forward thinking. And they're always also very... They're always very good with their crews. So they absolutely hail. I mean, you think about it, it's a brilliant, brilliant move for uh, the airline. Like when the the pilots did such a good job and the cabin crew did such a good job, it's such a good testament to the way they're, they train their people to. When they did return to service at the end of that month, they required that only flights that did not require full engine thrust be approved at the time for the A380. So in other words, they didn't want to use the A380 if they needed to use full thrust on the engines in the event that one would overspeed and overheat. And go boom. Yep. Like this one. Yep. Rolls-Royce issued a service bulletin to require in-service checks of the engines to inspect the intermediate pressure turbine disc and the surrounding area for failures or oil. 
So they wanted way more regular checks, and they actually issued a service bulletin that had to be complied with in a short period of time to inspect every engine. Airbus reaffirms this, and they required all operators of the A380 to inspect their engines. The EASA released an airworthiness directive requiring the inspection of the high-pressure, intermediate-pressure portion of the Trent 900 engines. The ATSB recommended that Rolls-Royce correct the issues with the stub pipe and increase quality control to prevent poorly manufactured parts from being installed on aircraft. That's a big one. That's Australia's Transportation Safety Board literally saying, fix this pipe. Fix it, yeah. And fix your quality control. Because clearly there's a problem with it. Yes. A service bulletin was created that required the inspection and measurement of the size of the oil feed stub pipes within 20 flight cycles. So within the next 20 flight cycles from the time that that service bulletin was created, they had to inspect all operators of the Trent 900 engine mounted A380s uh, had to inspect that stub pipe for the sizes. Rolls-Royce released a software update for the engine management system that created an intermediate pressure turbine overspeed protection system, which prevents the disc from overspeeding and separating. So they actually made it electronic in the way that Airbus does. Which is crazy. They used the systems that were already in the airplane to determine if the the engine was getting too hot in a certain portion, that meant that there was likely an oil fire, and that could lead to the over speed and overheating of that intermediate pressure turbine disc. So what it does now is if it notices that the temperatures are incorrect, then it automatically reduces the engine power to reduce the amount of heat and speed being put on that intermediate pressure turbine disc. All parties, so the EASA, the ATSB, the the CASA, the Airbus, Rolls-Royce, the everyone, the everybody, subsequently made this a mandatory update immediately. Good. Yep. New inspections of the pipe were created, and 40 engines were removed from service for further inspections and replacement of the pipe. That's 40 potential. That's so much. Yes. So numbers vary a little bit on this, but that's what the official report says, is that 40 engines were targeted as maybe having a problem. And that's huge, because at the time, there were only 20-something A380s in service. So that means there were more engines with problems than there were total A380s. That meant that nearly every A380 in the sky had to have an engine removed from service. Rolls-Royce quality control program was dramatically restructured and communication protocols were created from engineering to production and reverse. So in other words, communication just wasn't very good between the engineering team, production, quality, all that. They completely changed their protocols for communication between all three departments, made sure that it was way more open and that everybody understands and there's actual procedures in place for how parts should be engineered and checked. JD checked. So their quality control program was completely restructured for this. Good. At Rolls-Royce. The landing distance calculators for the A380 were adjusted significantly to provide more accurate data, which is much safer for aircraft operations. So... It doesn't spit out numbers that are unrealistic. There was an updated certification standard for the uncontained engine failures. So this was actually really big. But basically they're saying when an engine gets certified for service use, say on an A380, that that engine, the requirements for that engine to contain an engine failure are now different. They have to comply with higher standards now so that uncontained engine failures won't happen. 
It'll be a contained so engine it, failure. So engines don't go boom? Yes. In theory. And sever everything? Yeah. And then they really didn't talk about it, but I know a little bit about this, and I'd like to read more about it, but Airbus did rework the ECAM system a little bit so that if you were in a dangerous situation, it doesn't keep you flying around for an hour trying to go through system failures. Yeah. Because you don't always have that luxury. Right. The likelihood of this exact same thing happening again is now extremely low, thanks to all these things. But in the event that something did happen where the A380 had to go through a lot of these things, i.e. when it almost happened again, then they don't have to spend an hour flying around. Now, when it did happen again, they actually spent even more time in the air because they were over the Atlantic Ocean. Ah. But we'll cover that one in another accident. Yeah. Incident. And yet in the another episode at some point in the future. So this could have been the most catastrophic single aircraft disaster in history, but it wasn't. Because the crew were wasn't. the crew were really good at their job. The airplane was actually still manufactured really well and managed to keep flying even though it had all these issues. And to be fair, it's really good that the number one engine was still going. Yes. Because it could have been a possibility that that engine severed all the lines and the engine just stopped. And that's a problem. Yeah, for sure. Because then you only have one wing (laughs) with engines working and one wing with no engines working. And that's really hard to control. Exactly. So it's good that the number one engine didn't turn off completely by it being severed from everything else. It caused it to be an issue later. But we've talked about it with the 747. With the A3 A380, it can fly with three engines. Yeah, it can probably it can, fly with two engines. It can. It can but fly it has with two to be engines. one on each wing. <laughs> well, in theory, it can still fly with two on the right wing, but it would be much it'd be more really difficult. hard to control. So yes, this was an issue, and part of what they did is they actually rerouted some of the wiring that runs to the number one engine, so that there is a backup system to shut it down, and vice versa with also the number four engine. They rewired some of the electronic systems that help shut down that engine say with breakers and such. So there's now multiple split cable bundles that run through the A380 to get to that engine in Good. different directions. Yeah. So that there there's a little bit more of a fail safe for you this. You need your backups. Yeah. You need a backup on your backup. Yeah. Just in case so that backup fails. Yeah. <laughs> you need a backup of the backups, man. That's right. So that was Qantas Flight 32. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Again, thank you for continuing to listen. Remember, if you'd like to submit a funny aviation story for this month, you need to go to our website, hardlandingspodcast.com. Where you can also see all the pictures from this accident. Yes, and I highly suggest you do that. After you're done looking at the blog post, you can go to the listener story submissions and submit your story to us. Also, we're trying to do more with uh, social media um, Nick's doing a lot more with Instagram. I'm doing it with Twitter. If you do follow us, we will follow you back. And you'll also get like cool stuff from us throughout the week instead of just hearing us on Tuesday. So, Thanks, Chris Stallard, for this episode again. Again. He is also a patron. Thank you yes. so much. Thanks. Thank you to those of you who are patrons. If you can't be a patron, which... Dude, we get it. Dude. We yeah. had someone contact us, I think it was a couple weeks ago, that said, I'd love to contribute on Patreon. I just can't do it right now. And we were like, uh, it's great that you just listen every week. Yeah, we appreciate that more than anything. Yeah, so please continue to listen. Don't feel like you absolutely need to go to Patreon to support us. The fact that you keep coming back and listening is more than enough. It means so much. It does. Because let's be honest, 2020 has been a <laughs> show. So. <laughs> <Bleep>. Yeah. <laughs> I was told to say that verbatim. 
Yes, and then fair. we'd bleep it out later. Yep. Or hashtag a dumpster fire. Either or. We get it. Yeah. It's people are in different financial situations right now because of everything going on. Yeah. So we get it. Thank you for continuing to listen, even if you can't support us on Patreon. If you can, that would be great. Go check it out. I've by the way, I can see when you guys click on stuff on the website. I have creeped around there a little bit. I can see where your IP address is from, but I can't see who you are, obviously. But the our but website, we know you're looking. Yeah, our website does show me more who's than, clicking on stuff and who's looking at more stuff. More than anything, so. we appreciate that people are actually going there and looking at stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's when cool. We, when we first had the website up, no one was going and looking at yeah, it. We're like, <laughs> we pay for our website, guys. Nah, it's totally <laughs> worth it, though, I think, because I think it's a... It's a good resource for us to have. You can actually just go see directly what we're talking about rather than trying to Google search it. Yeah. That, and we can be like, here's our sources. We're not just spouting stuff. No, everything we do, we try to do as true to form as possible. We're not trying to give you any sort of misinformation. Now, I can't always say that everything is perfect or, you know, as absolutely factual as possibly can be. We're only doing as best as we can interpreting from reports, but the reports are the only true factual information you can get for these so. yeah so which is why we usually don't sometimes we'll do one without a report if we get enough information from another source but usually we have reports yep so we oh, yeah. we read them so you don't have to again thank you for listening this week we hope you have a great week please don't be dumb please wear your mask etc etc as i always say <laughs> yeah <laughs> the end of every episode thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week keep, keep your airspeed speed up, up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.